It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Pleasure to be with you. Lots to do today, as always. We've got a good lineup. We're going to talk about Ukraine and Hunter Biden's laptop. This laptop story is getting out of hand. And uh, it's, it's a hornet's nest. It's going to blow up in Joe Biden's face. He just, he just cannot keep saying that he didn't know anything, that he never talked to, to his son Hunter or anybody else in the family business. <laughs> the family business. It's like, uh, it's like a mafioso story, what they've done. We're talking about Ukraine, too. We've got Robert O'Brien former Trump national security advisor. I want to, let me make a few comments about this uh, Ukraine story. Very, very good editorial op-ed piece by General Wesley Clark, who I've known for many years. He's a smart guy. He's a Democrat, by the by, who, uh, in fact, he ran for president as a Democrat years ago. But um, let's see, it was yesterday or the day before, I don't know, Wednesday, it's Thursday or Friday. Anyway, point is on Ukraine, this is a very important moment in the Ukrainian story. And Wes Clark makes the case, which has been made by Gary Kasparov, the former Russian uh, chess grandmaster and human rights advocate who was, who was on our... Uh, Fox Business Show, Cudlow, earlier last week, and made by other people too now, that having whipped the Russians, having stopped the Kiev invasion, now we're fighting in the eastern part of Ukraine, in the Donbass region, the Russian army, which was so badly defeated, in its uh, in this in Kiev and around Kiev and north of Kiev uh, and Belarus, all that stuff they've lost badly. There's an opportunity here to beat them, to defeat them in the east. Believe it or not, all our generals were wrong. General Milley was wrong. The Biden administration was wrong. The brave Ukrainians, courageous Zelensky. You know, suffering unbelievable civilian losses, wars against humanity. I mean, Putin obviously is a, is a war criminal. But here's the thing, that point that, that General Clark made, which others have made. If you win, if the Ukrainians can beat them in the east and literally drive them out, not only would this be a tremendous victory for sovereignty, democracy, for international law and order, but also it would defeat and end Vladimir Putin's regime. That's the key point. And a second point related to that, a victory in Ukraine driving out Putin will send the strongest possible message to the Chinese that if they have dreams of Taiwan or any of the uh, Asian Pacific territories, including the Philippines, but Taiwan is the most important, that they can't get away 
with that kind of with that kind of violation of sovereignty, that kind of imperialism, that kind of uh, uh, world dominance. Can't get away with it. So this is a big moment. The next couple of weeks are going to be hugely important. Now, it's a central point here that the U.S. government has got to supply all of the weapons that they need. The MiGs, the Sukhoi aircraft, the artillery rounds, all of it is so vitally important. But the Ukraine, if the U- Ukrainians can prevail, will secure the borders, expel Russia from all of Donbass, and it will end Vladimir Putin's regime. That's the regime change. And Biden, you know, flirted with regime change. He said that. Uh, it's now, I guess, two weeks ago. Then they all, then they all backed off, ran it back. They shouldn't have. It was the best thing Biden said in his whole presidency failed presidency, but at least he got that point right. Putin is a war criminal. He is a crook. He has committed crimes against humanity. The things that the Russians are doing, you see with the bombing of the train stations, yet another example. Hitting you know, elderly people, men, women, children, whatnot. I mean, it's horrible. And then, of course, this uh, Ukrainian victory, stopping Russia and Ukraine would, of course, in a sense, guarantee uh, Moldova, Georgia. It would also stop them from going into the Baltic states and Poland and so forth. That's why this is so important. And it would undermine China. Really, there's nothing more important right now. Biden's whole administration has to focus on this point. The urgency is incredibly important. The intensity is important. I don't know if they're up to it. Now, they have provided weapons, yes. It just seems slow. Everything is always slow. Ukrainians need it now, and it takes a bunch of weeks. You know, the other one is cutting off Russian oil exports to the U.S. Cutting that off. The, you know, the date that that goes into place is June 24th. I mean, we're still buying Russian oil and gas, not as much as the Euro- Europeans are the worst here. I mean, the Europeans are still providing Putin with a billion dollars a day, roughly. Almost $40 billion since the war began because of their oil and gas purchases. They just cannot get away from that. They could if we had decent energy policies, and of course the whole issue of producing more oil and gas and the Green New Deal and all the damage that that has done to our foreign policy and our national security, not to speak of what it's done here in the United States with gasoline prices and one of the contributors to inflation, not the only one, but one of them. But the point I'm making is the Bidens, it just always seemed to be, you know, a dollar short and a day late helping Ukraine. I mean, even cutting off the Russian oil imports June 24th. Huh? Really? It's three months from now. April, May, June. Why are we waiting there? We'd we still be providing money financing Putin's war machine. And all of this is of a piece. And they cannot continue. They have got to step up with intensity and urgency and get the weapons 
to the Ukrainians so that Zelensky and his military people can fight back. You know, the Ukrainian army has done so well, but they need air cover. They need air power. And that's really what it boils down to. Can we get them the weaponry to win? Not a standoff, but to win. Russia could be pushed out. And if they are, Putin will be pushed out. He's a thug. He's a war criminal. He's a dictator. He's an autocrat. He's a crook. He's stolen hundreds of billions of dollars. His $700 million yacht is still sitting off the coast of Italy. I don't know why we haven't seized it. It's his boat. Everybody knows it. We've sanctioned him. So take his boat. That's what sanctions are all about. Anyway, that's the key point right now. And you know, this story, I mean, this slips over into our e- economy as well. I mean, you've got, you've got skyrocketing food prices. It's a very bad story. We, of course, we have skyrocketing energy prices, but we have skyrocketing food prices. Again, much of the inflation is a function of excess money creation by the Fed, excess government spending, really deficit finance government spending goes back a year. And the inflation rate has jumped to 8% from less than 2%. But the war is having an impact. Yes, oil prices, gasoline prices, although they have been rising sharply before the war. Food prices, which have been gradually rising before the war. What you have now is wheat prices and grain prices are exploding. You know, Ukraine was the breadbasket of Europe. Ukraine is a big uh, exporter of wheat and grain and fertilizer. That's been cut off. And the same is true in Russia. You've got supply chain problems in the Black Sea. You can't get stuff out. So Europe is suffering, and it's also affecting world prices, and it's affecting American farm prices. And that's affecting consumers. And it's showing up in the consumer price index. So it's yet another reason for the need for urgency on the part of the Biden administration to throw all our resources to President Zelensky and his military so they can win. See, one issue here is we've never had a clear statement from Biden that the U.S. wants a Ukrainian victory in this war. We've never had that statement. We had a kind of light-footed reference to it, I guess yesterday from the Pentagon spokesman, Kirby. But he didn't really come out and say victory in Ukraine. But that should be the goal. And again, think of this. You could get rid of Putin without a single boot, a single American boot on the ground. Not a single troop. We do it by helping the brave, courageous Ukrainians, their military and their people. That's the way to do it. They want to do it themselves, but they need the resources. They need the money and they need the weaponry, the hard weaponry, the lethal weaponry, the air weaponry. 
We're whipping them on the ground. Ukraine's whipping them on the ground. But they need air cover. And Russians have these missiles, so they need air defense systems. And we have given them some. We have. We never got them to MiGs, the Soviet MiGs in Poland. You know, it's been weeks since that discussion has been going on, and we still have not delivered those MiGs. We have not given the okay. So my point this morning to open the show is that the stakes are so high. We should seek victory, not a standoff, not a lousy peace treaty that the Russians will, you know, walk away from like they always do. We have a chance. The Ukrainians are tough, brave, courageous. Let's help them. Let's maximize everything. Let's do it fast. This is a turning point in history. I don't know if the Bidens get that. They're always behind the eight ball. They always leave from behind. They're always slow. Just go for it. Don't worry about the enmity of Putin. You can get Putin out. He will be thrown out if he loses Ukraine. And then you'll send an incredibly tough, strong message to China. These are important themes. These are, and of course, you'll help the world economy. You'll help the American economy regarding energy and food. So let's get going. That's a key point here. I'll begin the show with that. Anyway, join us during the week. As I said, Fox Business, Cudlow's the name of the show, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. Show's doing great. People have been wonderful. Viewers have been terrific. We appreciate the support. The show's been a great success. And we've got a lot more to do here. You can live stream us, by the by. It's LarryCudlowShow.com. LarryCudlowShow.com. Live stream us over the Internet, uh, throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back after this brief message. Now, back to the Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Cudlow. Great to be with you. You know, it's a big issue is I'm going to touch upon this over the course of the show is this um, immigration issue. It's really quite remarkable border. The border crisis, of course, is getting worse and worse. And now the Bidens want to get rid of this Title 42. That was a pandemic related uh, border issue, immigration restraint issue. Trying to keep folks out. You know, two million illegals crossed the border last year. It's a terrible story. And the only the only thing we had is Title 42. They got rid of the, they stopped building the wall. Uh, they got rid of the Remain in Mexico. And in 2020, Title 42 was good, was used well. 2021, I mean, they didn't enforce it, but... Title 42, you've got to have COVID protection. And if you don't, you go back. You go back across, you go back into Mexico or wherever. And they want to get, they want to do away with that. The Bidens want to do away with that. The CDC, which should not be running immigration policy, nonetheless wants to do that. Uh, I believe it would be, expires in the next few weeks. And it'll be mass illegal immigration across the border. That's what's going to happen. I mean, what's happened is bad enough. 
but at least they could they could have used Title 42. And it's a great problem. And the Bidens have never had a policy to stop illegal immigration. I mean, this guy, Mayorkas, who's the Secretary of uh, Homeland Security, DHS, he's on news shows this past week telling people it was, it was the Trump administration that gutted all of our protections uh, for illegals. It's, I mean, it's just a flat-out lie. It was the Biden administration. Now they want to get rid of Title 42, but, you know, catch and deport was given up. As I said, remain in Mexico was given up. Building the wall was given up. I mean, me, I'm, I say save America, build the wall. I say save America, go back to remain in Mexico. I say save America, keep Title 42, keep it. We cannot let another couple of million people in. And by the by, the story here is not just the issue of illegals. The story here is the narco-terrorists who run the border. The story here is drug trafficking, fentanyl trafficking. You know, China, I mean, I was at the dinner with President Trump and China President Xi in Buenos Aires. It was a G20 meeting, 2019. And Trump said to Xi, the first thing he said was, would you stop fentanyl? Would you make it illegal in China? And she agreed. And then, of course, lied. And so they export, China exports fentanyl, the raw materials. The drugs are made in Mexico. They're sent across the border, killing, killing thousands of, of people here in America. It's about drug trafficking. It's about sex trafficking. It's about kidney trafficking, children. The border is out of control. And one of the few things that could work is to keep this COVID restraint, this Title 42 COVID restraint. And they're not going to do it. I don't know if it can be stopped. Republicans and some Democrats, by the way, in swing states, Hassan of New New Hampshire, for example, Kelly in Arizona, they would like to either couple COVID aid with keeping Title 42 or just having a vote on Title 42. If you had a straight up and down vote on Title 42, it would win. And Chuck Schumer, our New York guy, is opposed to it. Carrying water for the Biden administration, which does not care about our border, has no interest in our border. It's crazy. And it's a big, big issue. The other last thing, I just want to tease you with this. Elon Musk to the rescue, taking a huge stake. He's now the biggest shareholder in Twitter. And they are going to have to change their ways. They're going to have to, li- they're going to, have to allow some free speech. And my point on this is Twitter just, you know, you post it. Twitter should post it and let people decide whether it's good, bad, ugly, or the rest. But free speech from Elon Musk on Twitter. It's potentially a terrific story. Anyway, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. Other side of the break, we're going to talk more about the Ukraine with Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor. Stay with us, folks. Stay with us. I'm Kudlow. Lots more to do. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. 
try and get Robert O'Brien on the phone. But while we're trying to get him on the phone, I want to talk about the Joe Biden laptop computer stuff. Fantastic stuff. Because remember, he doesn't know anything. Remember, he has not talked to any of his family members. And it's so great. I mean, we're going to have uh, Miranda Devine on uh, at the top of the hour, the 11 o'clock hour. But, um, and she's going to give us the update. She's been fabulous on the story, the book, all her great reporting. But what, you know, what you're finding is here, not only uh, various illegal influence peddling uh, money. I mean, the guy's, all right, we'll stop with we will stop with uh, with Joe Biden. It's just that he doesn't talk to anybody in his family, and his whole family is involved in the family business, <laughs> and the family business is influence peddling in China, and Russia and Ukraine. But I got my great friend Robert uh, O'Brien here, just in the nick of time. He's a former national security advisor in the Trump administration. He's chairman of the American Global Strategies. He's a great pal. So, Robert, you're out there someplace, huh? Hey, wonderful to be with you. I just got back to California. I've been on the road all week, and uh, it's, it's good to be back in sunny Southern, Southern California. Did you say you were campaigning on the road all week? I, I was. I, uh, I did a couple of things. I was out in Oklahoma for our good friend uh, Alex Gray, who's running for Senate and is starting to pick up in the polls and is the only Trump candidate running for Senate in Oklahoma. Wow. And uh, ter- terrific young American first candidate uh, with great foreign policy experience, which we, we sure need in the Senate right now as we face all these crises around the world. And then uh, last night I was with young Kim, our uh, congresswoman from Orange County, California, for one of the first Korean-American women in Congress, Republican. And she's just terrific. And, you know, the crowds that are turning out, it's unbelievable, Larry. It's it's uh, the most diverse crowds I've ever seen in a Republican uh primary and uh, Republican race, I mean, Hispanics and women and African-Americans and Asians, and people are so fed up over the, the, the price of gas and the loss of our energy independence and, and inflation, and it, it, it's pretty amazing to see out in, when you when you get, you get out the, with the folks and uh, outside of the big cities. You know what I say, the cavalry is coming. The cavalry is coming. Hundred <laughs> percent. The the revolt against Biden's left wing progressivism is showing up in a, all across the country, even in crazy California. That's what you're saying. Yeah, I, I'm saying it. The other thing is, they talk about your monologues on your your four o'clock uh, <laughs> show on, on on Fox Business. People people say Larry Larry has raised such a nice guy, and he's he's really mad. He's really mad about what's going on. I am. And uh, people people are talking about your show. So you're 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 leading the charge. You're the uh, you're leading the cavalry. You're you're, you're on the bugle. <laughs> John Katsimatidis, who owns the station, has got a Rin Tin Tin bugle call for me now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Mr. O'Brien, let's talk some foreign policy. Um, winning in Ukraine. Uh, this is something I heard from Gary Kasparov, the Russian grandmaster and human rights advocate. But also, surprisingly, uh, Robert, I heard it uh, from a, a good op-ed piece in this week's New York Post from... Um, uh, a, Demo- a Democrat, uh, Wes Clark, former general, retired general, he ran for president as a Democrat. But Wes Clark made, it interests me because he's a military man, kind of made the same case that Kasparov made 
Uh, and we, you know, we had Bill Barr on too, and Barr agreed. If if we supply all the necessary weapons, the Ukrainians could actually repel the Russians. All right, they whooped well, them in in Kiev. Absolutely. And so, but follow this. What? And then the next step is Putin will be removed in Russia. All right, you want regime change? Win in the Ukraine. That's the point that these guys are making, and I wanted to get your take on that. And then the final thought, Robert, is if all those pieces fell into place, it sends the strongest possible message to China. Don't mess with us. Don't mess with Taiwan, but don't mess with the U.S. So what do you think about all that? Well, listen, the lodestar for us when it comes to foreign policy is is Ronald Reagan. You, You worked for him. I worked for him as a young intern. And remember what Reagan answered when they asked him, how does the Cold War end? Yes. We win, they lose. That's it. And, and that's what we've got to do in Ukraine. And, and it's interesting to, to see the Democrats, the progressives, Michael McFaul, the former ambassador to Russia, who's a big Obama progressive professor up at Stanford. He's been calling for, for full sanctions on on uh, Russia. In mm. fact, uh, he, he claimed, I, I said, the, the first people to call for full sanctions on Russia, oil and gas, central bank, were Larry Kudlow and I in Kudlow's show two months ago. Yeah. And he said, no, I called for him then, too. And so so the, the Democrats are coming late to the game. Uh, I did a fundraiser in one of those politics makes strange bedfellows uh, for, for humanitarian relief in, in Ukraine and Washington on Wednesday with Sean Penn, uh, actor, oh my uh, God. buddy of ours, who, who's a uh, progressive and uh, oh my God. Uh, very progressive. But he, he wants the MIGs in, in Ukraine. Yeah. And we, yeah. And we should have got and we should have gotten the MIGs in U, to Ukraine. I mean. Gina Haspel, who worked with with you and me in the Trump administration mm-hmm. as our director of the CIA, Gina would have had those MIGs with with yellow and blue flags painted on them. She would have gotten them to Ukraine through a Russian arms dealer to make sure that Putin got his ten percent, and, and the Ukrainians mm-hmm. would be enforcing their own no, no fly zone with Ukrainian pilots over Ukraine instead of having their their railroads bombed and their people killed, their their innocent civilians killed by these Russian, you know, barbarians. So. So you're 100 percent right. And I, and I think what's happening is Democrats or even liberal Democrats are starting to see the weakness of American foreign policy and realizing that peace through strength works. And, and to your last point, you know who's watching this conflict in Ukraine more than anybody in the whole world? Our friend Xi Jinping, mm-hmm. because he wants to invade Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And now he's seen, the, he's seen how hard it is uh, to invade an advanced industrial country. And he's seen you know, the, the support the Ukrainians are getting around the world. He does not want the Chinese economy shut off with massive sanctions, and he doesn't want to see all his, his PLA Navy ships destroyed in the in the Strait of Taiwan. So we need to get the Taiwanese the weapons they need now. We can't wait like we did with Ukraine until the war started to try and, and get them the weapons they need. We need to get them to Taiwan now so that Taiwan can deter them. And then we also need to tell the Chinese no half-measure sanctions like we've done on, on Russia. Uh, we're going to have full, full sanctions if you come after Taiwan. And the last point I'll make, and, and you and I were involved in this in the Trump administration, thank goodness we got them those Javelin missiles because it's mm-hmm. amazing that those American, American-made, manufactured here in the USA, uh, American-made Javelin missiles thwarted the Soviet armor invasion of Ukraine. And that was thanks to Donald J. Trump and his administration, and, and, and you and I were part of trying to break the logjam to, to get those missiles to uh, to the Ukrainians. And that's what saved Kiev and Kharkiv and and Odessa in the in the in the first instance. So a lot, a lot there to unpack, but but great question, Larry. No, it's it's. Key. I mean, I'm kind of stunned. Well, two parts here. One is why haven't the MIGs been delivered? 
That to me is it's still going. That debate is still going on. And and secondly, in your judgment, the Biden administration want the Ukrainians to win. Do they understand the implications for Putin, for China? And um, and or do they want a standoff, Robert O'Brien? They still worried about intimidating Vladimir Putin at this stage of the game. They've never come out and really called for a Ukrainian victory. And, you know, we could we could get rid of we could save Ukraine, get rid of Putin, send the message you're describing to Xi in China without a single American boot on the ground. I mean, it can't be. What could what what could be better than that? Isn't it great that the Ukrainians are just asking for the weapons? They're not asking for American troops. They just want the tools so they can defend themselves. Yes. And and win this war. And and we're not giving it to them. And uh, no, look, I think this this concern in the White House that they don't want to provoke Putin. Putin read that. Uh, It goes all the way back to 2014 in the Obama administration when he took Crimea from Ukraine. And the Obama folks said there will be heavy sanctions, and there weren't heavy sanctions. There was a slap on the wrist. And then the same thing happened this time. So we, as I always said, and I drove my my staff nuts talking about this almost every week when we had our senior directors of the National Security Council together, weakness in international affairs is provocative, and the perception of weakness is provocative. Peace through strength works and and keeps America safe. And the problem is that that these guys are so afraid of Putin and, and escalating uh, you got to stand up to a bully once in a while, and the way to stand up to the bully here is full sanctions, as as you called for, Larry. You were one of the very first on your show. Full sanctions on the Russian Federation Central Bank, not excluding oil and gas transactions, because the only thing Russia sells are oil and gas. So if you exclude oil and gas sales, there are no sanctions on the Russian Federal Russian Federation Central Bank. Kick them off SWIFT for oil and gas, and then give them the, the tools they need. Uh, to fight. Let's be the arsenal of democracy again. We don't need to send American pilots into a no-fly zone. Just give the Ukrainian pilots the planes they need to, to defend their own country. And, and, and they want to fly the planes over Ukraine. They don't even want to fly them over Russia. So you know, the, the Russians didn't worry when they gave MiGs to the North Koreans and the North Vietnamese when they were shooting down American pilots like John McCain and others in Vietnam and in Korea. Uh, that didn't lead to a nuclear war. You know, we've got to stand up to this guy. We've got to stop being afraid. And, and, and our weak, the problem is our weakness now, or, or at least the perception of weakness, is what's provoking Putin. It's not strength that's provoking Putin. It's, it's his perception of our weakness. Well, absolutely, 100%. 100%. Robert, uh, i got to take a commercial break. Will you stay right where you are? Absolutely. On, on whatever phone line we finally got you on. And I'm, we'll I'm here right. for you. We're talking to Robert O'Brien, who was former national security advisor under President Trump. He is currently chairman of American Global Strategies. He is a dear friend and a very knowledgeable man. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about the oil situation. And I want to talk more about peace through strength. Why hasn't President Biden made a clear statement that we want the Ukrainians to win and that that will get rid of Vladimir Putin. We'll be right back after this brief message. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here talking to Robert O'Brien, who's former national security advisor in the Trump administration, currently chairman of American Global Strategies. Robert, the um, Biden's talked about putting sanctions, ending Russian 
uh, oil imports to the U.S. But here's the thing. The sanctions don't go into place until June 24th, which is three months. Now, that to me is emblematic of their fright of Vladimir Putin, because I think they think by the end of June, this game would be over and the Russians will have won. And that, you know, this is the standoff scenario, not the victory scenario. June 24th. So now some valiant Republicans in the Senate are trying to change that. And they might even have some help from some Democrats, a couple of conservative, moderate Democrats. But again, I come back to this point. Does Biden want to, A, see the Ukrainians win, and B, really get rid of Putin? And what's he waiting for? Well, look, the, the, the invasion was a sea change for these uh, guys, and, and what, what they tried to do was appease Putin. And mm. Putin had two foreign policy objectives when we were in office, Larry. Number one, he wanted a clean extension of the New START nuclear treaty, uh, and he, he wanted to make sure that, uh, that we stayed in that treaty and that he could continue to build non-New START-compliant nuclear weapons, which we weren't building, and build this massive arsenal of tactical nuclear weapons. And we called him on it. President Trump said, no way. You want us to stay in this treaty, you've got to stop building the tactical nukes. And we had that deal you know, basically negotiated. And then President Biden came into office and he said, you know what? I want great relations with Russia, so we're going to give you a clean extension of New START. You don't have to do anything. You can keep building as many tactical nukes as you want. And, uh, and, and so Putin put that in his pocket. And then Putin's second foreign policy objective was to get the Nord Stream 2 pipeline completed so he could have total energy dominance over over Central Europe and Germany, and, and that Germany wouldn't be able to do anything without his approval because he could shut off their lights at any, any time of the day, day or night, 24-7, 365. And, and we had stopped Nord Stream 2 with massive sanctions, but also working with our allies like Denmark, because they had to go through Denmark's waters to, to lay the pipeline, and Denmark had helped us stop Nord Stream 2. All the Europeans, including most of the Germans, are against Nord Stream 2. It was only the German industrial elite that were for Nord Stream 2. So we appeased Putin with Nord Stream 2, and we thought that we'd build goodwill, or at least the the Biden administration thought, well, if we give Putin what he wants, then he'll be nice to us and we can get along with him. Well, what did he do in turn? He put 150,000 troops on the Ukrainian border and demanded further concessions, and then when he didn't get them, he invaded. So we have to learn a lesson from this. You can't appease Putin, and, and, and the sanctions are just one more form of appeasement. These half-measure sanctions mm. that you and I have been criticizing for months don't, don't help. They actually harm them. And, and so when we talk about victory, I, I look at Michael McFaul, again, Obama's ambassador to Russia, mm-hmm. Gary Kasparov, lefty, uh, Sean Penn, mm-hmm. uh, progressive actor. These guys are all calling for what we're calling for. They're calling for a peace through strength approach because they want to see the Ukrainians defeat the Russians and save their country. And we've got to get, you know, the the administration has to get on that bandwagon. And they don't. I mean, you know, it's sort of like you get the impression Biden is shifting, but it's like pulling teeth. And it's always, he's always like, um, he's always three steps behind where he ought to be. Or five steps behind where you are. It's a couple of weeks behind. Yeah, yeah that's right. A couple <laughs> of weeks behind. And, the, um, you know, the point, um, the point that, uh, that Wes Clark was making, General Clark was making, is that the, the, conf- the key confrontation is right now in eastern Ukraine. Right now. 
that the next couple of weeks is how Wes Clark put it in this editorial that he wrote. And uh, General Clark is right. He's right. General Clark's yeah. right there. Yeah. I mean, that's what I wanted to get at. I mean, do the Bidens understand the urgency of the situation? You know, look, they're, they're, they understand the urgency. They're getting great intelligence, and uh, the American intelligence community and our, our uh, military understands what's happening out there, and, and uh, so they're getting it. But again, it's this, it's this concern about provoking Putin. Yeah. If we give them the MiGs, it'll pro- provoke Putin. You know, fortunately, we've got others. Uh, Boris Johnson, uh, Prime Minister Johnson from the U.K., is really leading on this, and he sent some highly some some missiles to the uh, anti-aircraft missiles to the Ukrainians that are more advanced than our Stingers, uh, and um, and they're taking out uh, Russian helicopters, and so so others are getting it. Uh, the the Czechs uh, and the Slovaks have sent them S three hundred anti-aircraft systems. So so some of the you know our friends and allies understand the the critical nature of of what's going on and the timing, but but uh, like America. Winston Churchill once said, America always does the right thing, but only after it's exhausted every other option. <laughs> and we're seeing that a little bit with the Biden administration. We, but we need to move now. Uh, and we can't worry about the, you know, provoking Putin by providing the arms that Ukraine needs to defend itself. Look, we're not providing arms to Ukraine to invade Russia. We're providing arms to Ukraine to defend its own territory right. and defend its own people who are being right. massacred. Big difference there. And, uh, mm-hmm. and we need to understand that difference. Um, Robert O'Brien, last points. Uh, what's happening with the Iranian stuff? I mean, the Bidens just seem hell-bent for leather to get a deal with Iran, which is utter insanity, as we've discussed before. Um, but then it seems like it's gotten bogged down in some issues, um, including Russian sanctions, including inspections uh, from the U.N. What can you tell us about the Iranian story? Well, it's hard to know that the negotiations are taking place behind closed doors. Uh, we know that the uh, the Biden administration and the Democrats have wanted to restore the JCPOA, the, the terrible Iran nuclear deal, uh, from day one. I mean, it's a legacy. Of, they, they want to do it as a gift to President Obama uh, because that was, they believe that was his great foreign policy accomplishment. And that accomplishment led to what, Larry? We, we gave Iran $150 billion in sanctions relief. And the story that we were told at the time by, by then-Secretary of State John Kerry, who is back in office as the climates are now, is that the, the Iranians are going to use that money for the Iranian middle class. They're going to alleviate poverty in Iran. Iran's going to become a, quote, responsible stakeholder, close quote, in the Middle East and help bring peace to the Middle East. What did the Iranians actually do with the money? They gave it to the Houthis in Yemen for a civil war. They gave it to Khatib Hezbollah in Iraq, which used the, the money to – to pay for missiles to bomb American facilities, including our embassy. They gave it to Hezbollah in Lebanon, which has destroyed one of the most beautiful countries in the world. Mm. And they gave it to Hamas in, in, in Gaza to attack the Israelis and build tunnels into Israel to, to launch terrorist attacks into Israel. That's where all the money went. And now we're going to do the whole thing again. And, and the, the crazy thing is, while the Russians are invading Ukraine, and, and the president is calling rightly calling Vladimir Putin a war criminal, we're using the Russian ambassador in Vienna to negotiate with the Iranians. I mean, it's it's the darndest thing I've ever seen. I mean, I don't think anyone's ever seen anything like this ever in international politics. It's crazy. You know, I was reading, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but the inspection guy, uh, I guess it's a UN agency, but he's not playing along with this. 
that he went in and said, no, they're not, uh, we, I, they're not making any deals that will allow us inspection of potential nuclear weapons and the buildup uh, of uranium and so forth. Um, and I was just interested whether that had any teeth to it. This guy seems to you know, have stopped them out, and they, they couldn't get around them. So, so, Larry, when the EU and the UN are, are, are saying that the deal is a bad deal, you know it must be a real bad deal. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it doesn't get worse than that. Here's, here's the problem with appeasement, whether it's appeasing the Russians or appeasing the Iranians. Appeasement is always and, and has been, we, we go back to the, the Munich days, and, and I don't like overwrought Munich analogies, but, but they're both, it's applicable here with both Iran and with Russia. In a democracy, appeasement is always initially popular. Because people want to pass the bitter cup. They don't want the confrontation. They don't want to have to spend money on, on the military and, and rebuild the military. They'd rather spend it on, on social programs. They don't want the likelihood of confrontation or the possibility of confrontation. And so you pass the bitter cup. The problem, though, is when you eventually have to drink it, the dregs are far more bitter. Because, and the, the deferred pain is far worse for the country because you didn't deal with a problem like Iran or this problem in Ukraine at the outset. So, so while appeasement is initially popular and, and, and the left loves appeasement, it's always worse for the country down the road. And we have to stop appeasing Iran. We have to stop appeasing Russia. And, and most importantly, for our way of life and our liberty, we have to stop appeasing China. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's inconceivable to me that an Iran deal can come out of this, particularly with the backdrop of what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, this is the collapse of Biden foreign policy. That's the way I look at it. And I'm glad there's a collapse of it. Anyway, Robert O'Brien, uh, former National Security Advisor to Donald Trump. Thank you, Robert. Uh, we'll talk soon. We've got to get you back on the TV show as well. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to bring in Miranda Devine from the New York Post and talk about Hunter Biden's laptop. Remember... President Biden doesn't talk to Hunter Biden or any of his relatives, so he has no knowledge of this, right? Wrong. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, and we welcome back to the show Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist extraordinaire. Fox News contributor and author of Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden, Big Tech and the Dirty Secrets, the President Tried to Hide. And Miranda, he's still trying to hide it. And, you know, this story, there's a certain amount of humor to this story because I'm reading up from your reporting and others. You've got the whole family involved, right? You've got his brother, Jim. Then you've got uh, Jim's sister, Valerie. And then you've got um, uh, her husband, John. And then we've got Sarah Biden, who is Jim's wife and therefore Joe's sister-in-law, is also involved. So, Miranda, they're all sitting around the table, Easter dinner or Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner, and no one talks about this story. No one talks about all the money they made. No one talks about the fact that the money has been financing Joe Biden and financing his vice presidential, uh, you know, the observatory uh, residence, et cetera. I mean, are we supposed to believe this? Honestly? Really? <laughs> 
I mean, it, it is a family grift, um, but it always has been, you know. Uh, and I don't think they talk about the details. Um, it, you know, it was pretty well organised by Joe that, uh, you know, it, the family, um, sort of the entire extended family benefited from all his perks of office, which he, uh, you know, basically plum, plummeted for the mo- for plundered for um, you know all it was worth so from the very beginning of his days in Delaware his extended family nieces nephews everybody would get you know grace and favor jobs they would get um, overseas postings they would get clerkships for judges they would get mm. jobs at coca-cola federal government uh, jobs and and you know lucrative little uh, appointments. Um, and so that was just the way the entire family rolled. So I don't think they were necessarily talking about the intricate details of the Romania uh, grift or the Burisma grift or, you know, the, the Russian oligarchs, three and a half million dollars or all the China stuff. That was just Hunter and Uncle Jim. They spoke uh, in detail about all that stuff. Um, Joe basically assigned his son Hunter to the role of moneymaker so that his other son, Bo, who was, you know, the apple of his eye and was going to become president in his eyes, um, could be squeaky clean and take government jobs like he was attorney general for Delaware uh, and uh, not take dirty money. And the same with Joe, so that he could boast that he was the the poorest man in Congress, modest Joe, you know, such a humble working class boy. In fact, what was happening was Hunter was getting the grift, the bribes, um, the overinflated salaries. And from that money, in his own words, he had to give half to his father. He paid his brother's um, tuition. He paid uh, for other things. And so he, he gripes in another email to family member that he gets zero respect from the the entire family uh, they treat him like he's a drug addict and a no hoper when he's supported them for the last 30 years hmm. so that's how joe has what his brother jim calls plausible deniability he's not actually present or there when the nitty-gritty details are worked out he leaves that to to hunter and to jim yes and we're supposed to believe that Joe was completely removed from all this, did not know a single yeah. thing. I mean, it's just, it really does beg credulity. Now, Miranda, the, you probably saw this morning, Jonathan Turley, a uh, very well-respected law professor. Uh, he writes up this Foreign Agents Registration Act uh, violations. And I don't know whether that's the same as the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but it's all of the same. It's all of a piece, and that Hunter may get busted on that. And I wanted to, just to ask your take on this in this grand jury in Delaware, which is actually investigating much more than tax fraud, as it turns out. I, I, I'm reading that they're looking into uh, Hunter's money laundering and again illegal foreign lobbying. They didn't register. So this stuff is going to. You know, what's the potential that this stuff will break open and break out? Oh, I mean, enormous. You know, if you're looking at FARA violations, uh, mm-hmm. they're just littered throughout the uh, the laptop, but also what Tony Bobolinsky tells us. Um, uh, you know, that's just one aspect of it. Uh, the other aspect that we know that the grand jury is looking at is um, money laundering. Again, uh, on its face, uh, there's so much evidence of that. Um, tax evasion, we, we 
well, we understand from what um, the uh, New York Times is saying that Hunter has paid back $1 million in back taxes, but that was after the investigation started. Uh, it started in 2018. So, I mean, ordinarily for the ordinary citizen, that does not get you off the hook. Um, but the New York Times is saying that Hunter will be asking for, or his lawyers are expecting, that that will, um, you know, remove any criminal problems for him. And uh, and similarly, they're saying that uh, if he sort of retroactively uh, res- uh, registers as a foreign agent, that that might be able to um, have the have his uh, any criminal charges on Farah be downgraded to civil charges. Yeah, but, um, I mean, he could go to jail for this. Absolutely. I mean, I mean Paul that, Manafort went to right. jail for that's Sarah what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, you know, Manafort was Trump's campaign. Manafort, Manafort by the way, is a guy I've known for 40 years. They stung him with all that. I, I'm just yeah. saying that, again, the White House position that uh, Joe Biden didn't know about any of this stuff uh, cannot it can at some point Miranda that wall has to break I mean people will know that Joe Biden was part of this that he understood it he was talking to his family about it and the prosecutions are going to be deeper I mean here this federal grand jury is doing more harm than I think most people realize it's not just about taxes and it's going to blow open all these other things. How's Joe Biden going to get around that? Joe Biden is lying to the American public. How's he going to get around that? Yes, he's continually lied. Um, he, I mean, he, he said before the campaign he knew nothing about Hunter's business dealings, and there's ample evidence he met multiple uh, of Hunter Biden's overseas business partners, uh, and he met them overseas, and he met them in Washington, D.C., and he even invited them to his own home, uh, the vice presidential residence. Um, so that's just absurd on its face. And, yes, it's unsustainable for the White House to continue to... Uh, follow that line that Joe Biden put down, which is that he is completely ignorant of any of this. Um, And we know that the grand jury has been asking witnesses who is the big guy. And the big guy, as we know from Bob Linsky, is uh, Joe Biden. And so uh, that means that that grand jury, that that, uh, US attorney investigation by David Weiss in Delaware, has been pulling on the threads Mm. of Hunter Biden's business deals. And at the other end, is Joe Biden. And the fact that they have actually gone there uh, tells you a lot. I mean, if they subpoena the Secret Service or the, the recently retired, like very recently retired Secret Service agent, who, uh, or two of them actually, who turned up at Hunter's hotel room in uh, Hollywood um, and uh, said to him, look, that that uh, debit card that you're using to pay a prostitute and, and it's just mm-hmm. been skimmed a thousand times, um, or, you know, several times, um, yeah, you've got to be careful because that's linked to Celtic's account. Now, Celtic is the Secret Service name for Joe Biden. Right. And, uh, so, you know, you subpoena those guys, you are going to be finding a lot of quite damaging information. I mean, they subpoena, have already, we know, subpoenaed bank accounts of Hunter Biden. And uh, we know that, um, that Hunter and Joe had shared bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, here was evidence that they had shared debit cards. Uh, Hunter has said they had shared uh, bank accounts. Um, Hunter's sort of factotum, uh, the president of his company, Rosemont Seneca, a guy called Eric Schwerin, um, he was 
had access to Joe Biden's, uh, well, a, a bank account of Joe Biden's where checks for Joe Biden were going that Hunter Biden had access to. So, you know, none of this is good for Joe Biden. And it's just kind of symptomatic of his entire life of, and he's gotten away with it. He sort of gaslights people uh, mm. by just shameface, just shamelessly um, it, denying thing, the things that have, as obvious as you, the nose on your face, he just denies they're true. And people sort of, I mean, when, when faced with a bald-faced lie like that, most people just go, oh, okay, there must be something to it. It's going to blow up, Miranda. It, it's just it's a time bomb ticking. And we, we will find we're out of time here. But I think, Miranda, we're going to, you know, Joe Biden will have received money from these grifts, as you call it, while he was in office. That's coming. I think that's coming. Yeah, I don't know cash. Maybe not cash, but there is evidence that he had bills paid and, uh, yes. and so on. Yes. He had a very champagne lifestyle. <laughs> champagne lifestyle. I love that. Miranda Devine, New York Post, Fox News. Thank you, Miranda. Talk soon. Thanks, Larry. All right, folks, we'll take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. On the other side of the break, DeRoy Murdoch is going to tell a story about what really happened on January 6th. Very important story because Donald Trump wanted the National Guard to come in and uh, protect the Capitol. And uh, Nancy Pelosi and the mayor of Washington, D.C. did not. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. We'll be right back. Now, back to The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So let's bring in DeRoy Murdoch, Fox News contributor and contributing editor with National Review Online and a senior fellow at the London Center for Policy Research and an old friend of mine. And DeRoy has written a very important column uh, called Insurrectionist Trump Approved National Guard Troops for D.C. on January 6th. The Democrats said no. It was Democrats that said no troops. And DeRoy, I just wanted you to report on this because I think it's very important research. And you're asking the question, you're saying, if Donald Trump really wanted his supporters to storm Capitol Hill on Jan 6th, and disrupt the congressional certification of the Electoral College votes, would he have, two days earlier, approved uh, virtually unlimited military protection, ten to 20,000 uh, Washington, D.C. National Guard soldiers? I mean, this is a really important question you're asking, and you're saying Trump had approved them. If I get this right, DeRoy, it was Mayor Bowser of Washington, and I thought I recalled that Nancy Pelosi refused to make a call. But fill us in on this, because this is, you know, the Jan 6 committee, all these left-wing Democrats are going crazy, and I don't think they have a leg to stand on. Well, Larry, you're absolutely right about that. It's great to be with you this morning. Yeah, this whole narrative has been constructed that uh, Donald J. Trump uh, tried to organize some sort of a coup d'etat with the uh, MAGA nation going in, taking over Congress, shutting down the Electoral College uh, certification, et cetera. And by the way, that day they were going state by state and saying, okay, there's fraud in Arizona, there's fraud in Pennsylvania. All this evidence would have been laid out. Uh, Trump had every incentive to let that process continue uh, unimpeded. But anyway, the argument is that he went in and wanted his, his uh, supporters to go in and take over Congress and I don't overturn it or something like this. Well, if he really wanted to do that, why would he, a couple of days before, approved uh, between 10,000 and 20,000 Washington, D.C. National Guard troops? Uh, early on, the request was made by D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, a Democrat, to have the National Guard support the D.C. Police Department. Uh, I, got, I communicated with uh, former 
Acting Secretary of Defense Christopher Miller and Cash Patel as Chief of Staff, and they both confirmed to me that, in fact, they were in the Oval Office when President Trump, uh, a couple of days before January 6th, said, yes, I approve of that, uh, he actually said, uh, as much as you need, whatever it takes to do this, just make sure that the American people are protected, uh, which would have put National Guard troops in uh, on the streets of Washington, D.C. And the people who marched up from that rally and started heading up Capitol Hill would have seen a bunch of soldiers there, and they would have screamed and yelled, made noise, they would have gone home, and none of what transpired would have taken place. If Trump really wanted to shut down that uh, recount, or I should say not the recount, but the certification, and uh, somehow uh, keep himself in power as president for life, I don't know how that would have worked, but if that were his plan, why would he have approved National Guard troops to get in the middle of all that? If you and I decided we want to rob a bank, would we call the NYPD and say, hey, send, send 100 squad cars uh, to the corner of uh, 14th Street and uh, University Place, because we're going to go into that Bank of America branch right there. That would make a lot of sense. If that makes no sense, what the left is accusing uh, the president of doing is absolutely equally absurd. You know, his, uh, as you point out in this article. Which is his, a town hall, by the way. Town hall. So um, he, he himself, and you, I think you quoted him someplace in here, he himself told people that this was to be a peaceful rally. And I don't understand the January 6th committee point. What is it their point? What are they saying? If if Trump wants 20,000 troops, he doesn't want an insurrection. He doesn't want anything. He's not overturning, overthrowing, nothing. There's no there there. That's the point. I, I don't understand what the January 6th committee is exactly trying to prove. Uh, they're trying to prove this idea that uh, he, he authorized, he wanted people to go in and attack the, co- to the Congress and, 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 oh, and interrupt this. Again, this situation where uh, at the very moment the windows were being crashed and, and the, the doors were being kicked down, Congressman Andy Biggs, at that time head of the Freedom Caucus, I watched this live when it happened, was on the House floor explaining how in Arizona there were people who registered to vote after the deadline had passed, and he had in his hand a stack of voter registrations that were submitted after the deadline, physical evidence of either vote fraud or at least vote irregularities. And they were going to spend the whole day going through Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, laying out the case as to why this election was at least fishy, if not outright fraudulent. Why would Trump interrupt that, number one? Number two, if he did want to interrupt that and have a bunch of his supporters go in and take over the Capitol and shut down the House, et cetera, why would he at the same time say to Cash Patel, and to the uh, Chris Miller, the, the acting Pentagon chief, make sure you have 10,000, 10, 20,000 National Guard troops on the streets. That makes no sense. And if he wanted a violent attack on the Capitol, why would he have said at the end of his rally, quote, I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard, unquote. Does that sound like an attack order? That's a key point. So. That's a key point, Deroy, right there. And I recall that. And I've made that case. I mean, I, look, I have said that I thought his speech on that day was, was too hot. All right? yeah. I thought it was too hot. Um, but that's his style, all right? That's his speaking style. hot style, style that's right. Right. I mean, that's it. That's Donald J. Trump. He's that's not Gandhi. I, <laughs> I worked for him for three years. I know all about that stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. And I also, I mean, in another segment, we could talk about, uh, you know, what uh, Mark Zuckerberg did. Uh, to rig the election beforehand mm-hmm. and all the things that go. I mean, I had Bill Barr, the attorney general on, 
who basically is saying the issue, you, you can't disqualify votes, but the votes themselves were phony votes. So but even Barr is sort of suggesting it. The, we had a long interview this mm-hmm. past week on the show that uh, this election uh, was rigged. But, 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 but coming back to January 6th, Trump did not want violence. Trump, you're saying with great evidence from Chris Miller and Cash Patel that Trump made the call to get ready for these troops. It was Bowser who didn't want them. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, that's she. I mean, she, first of all, she's a crazy lady, left wing. She ruined Washington, D.C., cl- shutting it down, uh, continuing to shut it down. To this day, Washington is, is, is in large measure shut down. I mean, she's a crazy left wing mayor. But you still, they could have, you know, Trump laid the groundwork for protection, yeah, not attack, right. protection. <laughs> and and uh, I explain in great detail again the pieces of townhall.com. Uh, Muriel Bowser, the Democrat mayor of Washington, D.C., the night before January 6th, sent a letter, which was a big surprise, apparently, at the Pentagon, the Department of Justice, when the letter arrived, uh, saying, quote, to be clear, the District of Columbia is not requesting other federal law enforcement personnel and discourages any additional deployment without immediate notification to and consultation consultation with MPD, Metropolitan Police Department, if such plans are underway. In other words, stand down. She's the one who, who stopped this. Nancy Pelosi also got requests from the Capitol Police for National Guard. She apparently did not go along with that. So you've got Muriel Bowser, Democrat, Nancy Pelosi, Democrat, standing in the way of Donald J. Trump, who was trying to get National Guard troops in Washington, D.C. to protect the Capitol. They're the ones who removed what would have been the safety rod from what turned out to be a meltdown. Trump was making a point about the election. okay, but it's not this violent insurrectionist point that the Raskin and these crazy Democrats are pushing in this January 6th committee. I mean, this is what you're saying here is very important, Deroy. It's really very important piece of work. That's why I wanted to get it out. Um, I don't know where these guys think they're going to go on this committee. I don't understand it. I, this is just more evidence. You know what? He he he's just making a point. That's all. Anyway, what he was doing, mm-hmm. Deroy Murdoch, Fox News, National Review. Thank you, Deroy. Terrific stuff. See you Good soon. to talk to you. Thanks a lot. All right, all right, buddy. Other side of the break, we're going to get in Tyler Goodspeed, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under Donald Trump. We're going to talk about the economy at some length. I'm Larry Kudlow. You know, Trump did not want violence. That's the key point. Anyway, we'll be back after this break. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So you can you can live stream us, by the by, LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. And uh, come around during the week, Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. The name of the show is Kudlow. So here we're going to bring in my great friend, Tyler Goodspeed who's former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration. He is presently a Hoover Institution fellow. Uh, Tyler, good to thank you. Thanks for coming around on a Saturday. We appreciate it. Good to be with you, Larry. I, um, I, I, I'm actually, I've had to flee into the deep interior of the East India Club in London because there's a, a large, loud, climate change protest going on outside in, in St. James's Square in front of the headquarters of British Petroleum. 
Oh, God. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> but thank you very much for that. It's a perfect place to talk about the U.S. economy. So I want, <laughs> I want to ask you, um, you know, a big question here. The Fed is changing policies, uh, however slowly and, you know, brilliantly or stupidly, but uh, they are shifting. They are going to take the punch bowl away. Maybe too late, too slow, and all the rest. But a big question on Wall Street, Tyler, is: Can can there be? Will there be a soft landing? Can we get out of this high inflation economy? And the Fed's going to tighten policies, raise rates, uh, take money out of the economy. They'll be running off their bond portfolio. Uh, Larry Summers wrote a piece, another piece in the Washington Post. You may have seen it. Um, he says we're in a stagflation mode and it's going to end in recession. So, Tyler, what what you think? Is the soft landing a triumph of hope over experience or could the Fed actually pull that off? I hope they can pull it off. It's not impossible that they pull it off. The record of the post-1945 U.S. economy is, it suggests it's, it's unlikely. Mm. And I think that the people underestimate the magnitude of the tightening that they're going to have to do because to actually tighten, you got to get real interest rates up. And that means you have to be hiking the nominal rate by more than the change in inflation. So <laughs> inflation has gone from below 2% to 8%. That implies a, a fair amount of nominal tightening. Yeah. So that's, that's really a key question. Um, I don't know what the right rate is. Let's say, for example, uh, the deflator or the personal consumption deflator that the Fed watches, I mean, that thing's running about 7%. So you're really, to squelch inflation, you're going to need a target rate of, you know, 8, 9, 10%. I think I read your colleague and my friend John Cochran wrote up uh, the Taylor rule, um, you know, John Taylor's rule, I think he said, which suggests a, a Fed funds target rate of 11 percent. I mean, I don't know. What do you think the right rate is? Where do you how far how far is this going to have to go and how much time is it going to take to get there? Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use a, a word that has been utterly disgraced, and that is that so, some of the increase in inflation has been temporary or transitory, and insofar right. as we expect inflation to come down from 8% to, you know, 6%, then that would that would say to me that, you know, we might need a 400 basis point increase in, in the Fed funds rate. Um, but you know, e- even in that scenario, that's, that's a bigger hike than I think a lot of people are expecting, and I don't know that markets can, can handle that without a recession. So that's like a 4% funds rate or 4.5% funds rate. We're at a half a percent yeah. now. Uh, yeah, I know. I think that's reasonable. Um, it may be too low, Tyler, but I, I don't know. Who knows? But, that, but your second point is key. Nobody's really expecting that, including the Fed. Right. And, and as I said, that, that's sort of in the optimistic scenario in which inflation eases from, from 8% to 6%. But if some of the energy price increases that we've seen thus far this year persist, 
you know, we we could be looking at eight or nine percent, a sustained eight rate of inflation in 2022 of that eight nine percent. In which case, you're, we're going to need a bigger. Uh, we we would need a bigger increase in the Fed funds rate. Um, have you been watching? Uh, you know, when they published the minutes last week, uh, they're talking about slowing down the portfolio by about a hundred billion dollars, I guess. But we don't know. A hundred billion dollars a month, but we we don't know. I guess they're going to start in May. They should have started in January, if you ask me. But in any event, what do you make of their pronouncements? I mean, are they going to be too slow? Are they going to be behind the curve? I mean, it's clear they're behind, way behind the curve now. I guess I'm asking you, Tyler Goodspeed, how how do they catch up to the curve? Right. I mean, as, as, as you said, they certainly they should have they should have ended mortgage back, purchases of mortgage backed securities over a year ago. Yeah. Uh, I think that they're going to have to tighten at allow runoff and actually tighten a lot faster than they did in in 2017, 2018, when there was no sign of inflation whatsoever. And I think there then the cap was something like 50 billion dollars. They never breached the cap. And they're they're probably going to have to do substantially more than that, and they might have to do some active selling of mortgage-backed securities because those those have a pretty long term, so they can't rely on just just natural runoff. So what's that going to do to the long end of the curve? Let's say let's say somehow they should have a four percent Fed funds rate. Right now it's uh, I'll call it fifty base. I call it one half a percent. Um, What's that going to do? The let's say the ten-year Treasury. Well, it's it's certainly going to impact the yield spread because you know if, if just natural runoff of some of these shorter-term holdings, you know that that's going to raise the yield on on some of the shorter-duration securities that they've been holding. Uh, and so, and we saw this in 2017, 2018, 2019. It's just the, the 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 end of of QE and the start of QT tended to compress that yield spread, uh, which is part of the reason why I think bond markets have been flashing red is because of that, that compression as, as they wrap, wrap up asset purchases and, and begin to, to approach actual outright QT. What's the economy look like to you right now? I'm just looking. Hold on a second. I'm going to go. I think I have it here someplace. The GDP, uh, the Atlanta Fed's GDP now is – Hold on, hold on. They're saying 1.1% is their latest estimate for Q1, 1.1%. Um, what's the economy look like to you? I mean, it looks like a very tight labor market. I, I mean, we just haven't seen vacancy rates, quit rates at this level ever, basically, and that's that's good for nominal wages. Although, as you know, at least on average, nominal wages just haven't been keeping up with with inflation. Uh, but it is a very tight labor market. At the same time, I just think uh, they've they've really policymakers in the past year have really messed up the supply side of this economy. And I think we're looking at something pretty stagflationary. Mm-hmm. What um, what's the war doing to all this? Well, certainly the, the direct impact is on prices, 
of commodities and food. I mean, I think that that is something that is underappreciated about the experience of the 1970s was the contribution of, of food inflation in globally, uh, but including in the United States. And then I think it also just introduces a lot of uncertainty. And as you, as, as you know, uh, uncertainty really raises the, the real option value of firms just postponing investment. And that, that isn't, isn't going to do a lot to help improve the supply side situation. Yeah, what do you think about Biden's $2.5 trillion tax hike proposal in the middle of all this? <laughs> I mean, I mean. Right. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, way, way to call forth increased labor force participation, way to call forth increased business investment, particularly in energy, uh, by raising tax rates, it, it, it doesn't add up. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I just think, look, inflation, in one sense, is too much money chasing too few goods. Wouldn't you want to increase the supply of goods? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to be, if you're tightening money, Tyler, wouldn't you want to be reducing tax rates? And reducing regulations, which would you know produce more production, more supply, more goods and services. You you would think so. And and look, we had this enormous increase in demand last year because of the one point nine trillion dollar America Rescue Plan. Not only was that bumping up against the supply side that was struggling to emerge from, or, well, I mean, it made enormous gains. But it was still emerging from from the pandemic, and then they included measures like an extension of the, the supplemental federal unemployment benefits and a, a child tax credit expansion with no work requirements that just impaired that supply side recovery that had been other underway. Yeah, it's a, it just seems, strikes me, Tyler Goodspeed. It's just, they're proposing exactly the wrong. In other words, it's the reverse of what we should be doing. Let's take a quick break. Can you come back? Uh, you're sitting there in London. Uh, can you hang? I got to take. I can. All right, got to take a quick commercial break. We're talking to Tyler Goodspeed. He's a former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration. He's now at the Hoover Institution as a fellow. He's uh, at the what is it? The East India Club in London, trying to fight off a. Um, an Earth Day. I'm going to call it an Earth Day demonstration. Anyway, I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back with Tyler in just a moment. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to Tyler Goodspeed, who's the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration. He is now a fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's coming to us from London. Tyler, what do you reckon? How much growth can we get this year? So I, I, heading into the year, I was a little bit on the low end of about 3% because I'm, I was looking at the supply side and I, it just wasn't adding up given the, 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 the stalled recovery in labor force participation, which fortunately has started to pick up for prime age workers uh, in the past couple of months. And that, that, that lack of business investment, particularly in, in the energy sector, I just the supply side wasn't adding up to me. And now with the energy price shock, look, every 10% increase in the price of oil, sustained increase in the price of oil, shaves about 0.2 percentage point off real GDP growth. So we, we could be looking at, at you know, 0.6 to 0.8 off that 3%. 
So you're really saying something like, uh, I don't know, six to eight percent inflation, two to three percent uh, GDP, which is a yeah. definition of stagflation. Yeah, I see. I see very, very low weak growth this year. Inflation continuing at a very elevated level, and the the, the risk of recession in any given year is about fifteen percent. I think that's probably higher this year, and then it's probably going to be higher next year. Yeah, I don't know how you get at. It. I mean, this is uh, the Larry Summers point. Uh, he he tends to look at it more from the Phillips curve trade-off of un- unemployment and inflation. But really, I don't know how you get out of this without a recession. In 2000, mm-hmm. you know, next, not this year, but next year or the year after, I think, Tyler, mm-hmm. it's going to be very hard to escape a recession. Yeah, and, you know, I, I'm an optimist. I know you're an optimist. But I, I struggle to see how, how we avoid it, and in part because you know, we've had a decade of very low and very stable interest rates, very low and very stable inflation, and a, a portfolio, a capital structure that makes sense under that regime just doesn't make sense under a regime where interest rates are having to go up very aggressively and inflation is still very high. If you were still at CEA, what would you recommend? What policies? Because you're going to get, I mean, the optimistic side of this is the cavalry's coming. You're going to get a big change in Congress. Republicans are probably going to take Congress. Uh, I know they're going to take the House, uh, and I think they're going to take the Senate, too. There's a revolt against uh, what Biden's, you know, there's a revolt against Biden's left-wing progressivism, basically, in all of its many forms, Tyler. So if you could have a policy change, what would you recommend? So I I would start with trying to give both people and businesses some tax certainty by working to, to make permanent some of the provisions of the 2017 tax law that are currently scheduled to start sunsetting. So on the business side, that would include full expensing. I think that's going to be really important for uh, incentivizing domestic energy production. I would also be looking to make permanent the marginal income tax rate cuts on the individ- on the personal side because, as I said, we really need to do- be doing everything we can to incentivize higher labor force participation. Wouldn't you? I, I think keeping the 21% corporate rate is very important. And, you know, Tyler, what else is this, this uh, minimum corporate tax? Both at home and abroad, uh, I think you want to you stay away from all that stuff. Uh, ab- absolutely, I mean the, the, the cartelization of international tax competition is, I think, terrible for for innovation and and incentivizing investment. And I am encouraged that if if Republicans do retake both out ho- both houses of Congress in 2022, that that is. That is not going anywhere. Secretary Yellen's deal at the OECD is not going anywhere. Yeah. That's my hope. Yeah, no, I think that's right. That whole rigmarole is is falling apart. Don't you think at some point, Tyler, we also have got to turn to federal spending? I mean, you look at the budget. Uh, we're they're still, you know, we're deficit financing a very substantial amount of government spending, and. 
that does put pressure on the Fed. I mean, you're going to have a clash between tighter Fed and a continued loose budget policy. I mean, I think the Republicans got to go after the budget, too. I mean, fiscal restraint is is definitely in order. It's very much needed. I'm I'm not holding my breath because we are now at a point where such a small fraction of federal spending is a discretionary and b non-defense. And you know, as if interest rates are going up, the the interest cost of I mean the, the money that the federal government is going to have to spend on interest payments is going to be a bigger and bigger deal. And the Biden budget vastly underestimate interest expense. Oh, yeah. I mean, Larry, their their assumptions about the path of interest rates, their assumptions about the path of growth under their policies massively flatters the the, the, the deficit over the next 10 years. Yeah, so, right, we're going to sell a lot more bonds than they're telling us, and we're going to sell those bonds at much higher interest rates than they're telling us. Mm-hmm. And, that, you know, that's yeah, a that's... wicked that's a wicked combination. I mean, that's, you know, that's the wrong path entirely. And that's why I agree with you it's not easy, although I've been talking to Russell Vogt, uh, who was the OMB director, um, I mean, there is a lot of domestic discretionary spending that could be cut. I'm not saying they'll do it, but you probably need the presidency to really get that done. But the fact is, there's a lot that could be done. There's several trillion dollars over time that could be taken out of that domestic discretionary budget. Yeah, and, you know, I would love to see further tax reform that incentivizes business investment, that incentivizes labor force participation. And, and if you want to do it in a, in a deficit-neutral way, uh, you know, there, there are additional tax expenditures that I would be targeting, things yeah. like the state and local tax deduction and the mortgage interest deduction. Those are, those are scheduled to come back, I think, after, in, starting in 2026. You know, if you eliminated those tax expenditures, that would be a couple trillion dollars uh, over over a decade, and you could plow those those tax savings into marginal rate reductions. Yeah, the individual tax code. You're right. I mean, look, those rates um, are too high. You know, small businesses, right? They pay the personal tax rate. How about how about the unrealized capital gains tax on wealth? What do you think of that? What a great idea! <laughs> well, actually, I, I think the, their billionaires tax was a bit of a cop out on their part. You know, they they didn't dare to uh, they didn't dare to offend their donor class by eliminating the step up in basis on capital gains. So instead, they they do something pretty gimmicky. Do <laughs> you know if they uh, the tax foundation did a study? If Biden's tax plans went through, we would have a, just about the highest tax structure in the whole OECD. I mean, we we'd be going from like the middle to the high to the top. I mean, we wouldn't we would be uncompetitive. Right. I think people forget that the the corporate tax reform in 2017 that that we introduced brought us pretty much just to the OECD average because we had been so uncompetitive 
before 2017 tax reform. So basically what, what they're proposing would would put us at the bottom of the pile again. I mean, it's again, it's exactly the opposite. It's done. I mean, it's done, Tyler, in the name of, you know, income redistribution, wealth redistribution, uh, people, quote unquote, paying their fair share. I mean, it, it's a socialist approach, basically. Right. It's a socialist. It's not a growth approach, is it, Tyler? It, it's a, it's an income leveling approach. It's a growing the pie is hard. We would rather spend our time and energy figuring out how to more equitably distribute it. Yeah, equitably. There's that word. The word equity appears about a hundred times in the Biden budget. I love. I love that. So, and um, Tyler, yeah. social justice, equity. Okay. Um, I mean, we're talking about socialism here. That's really what their goal is. That's the progressive goal, Tyler. It is, and it's sad because they are ignoring, if, if that is what they purport to care about, then they really ought to be looking and studying the lessons of, looking at and studying the lessons of the experience of 2018, 2019. And we saw declining income inequality, declining wealth inequality, declining uh, the, the right. gap between between black and white wages. Tyler Goodspeed. They they seem Tyler Goodspeed. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Enjoy London. Folks, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to do some stock market work. What's higher interest rates going to do to stocks? It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And you can get us, by the way, you can live stream us right now on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. All across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. You can join us during the week. Fox Business, name the show's Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Fridays. Lots of fun. We're going to have some fun right now talking about the stock market, which I think is an increasingly shaky proposition, at least in the shorter term. The cavalry may be coming, but I think some things are in place that are going to make it very difficult. We have David Bonson, founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group. His latest book is There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. And we have Jim Urio. Director of TJM Institutional Services and Chicago's leading restaurateur. By the way, Jim Urio, what? Uh, how's the restaurant business in Chicago look like? I always like to use you as an economic well, indicator. Up to this point, it's been pretty good. Anecdotally, I've started hearing that there's some some changes over the last couple weeks, and even anecdotally, the friends I hear who are you know, in a pretty decent socioeconomic range starting to talk about the bills at restaurants and how they're starting to cut back. So it's been good up until this point. I think the weather changing will delay any sort of um, you know, negative impact for a bit. But I think that, you know, what we're looking at, I mean, people's, our expenses are up 22%. So the the uh, profit margins are way, way down. It's become somewhat of a bad business in Illinois, particularly they've raised a minimum wage twice in the last 14 months uh, into the teeth of this nonsense. So I, I think it's going to be really difficult. But so far, it's not bad, to be honest. Yeah, terrific idea, raising the minimum wage. Amen. Uh, <laughs> with wages rising everywhere anyway. But can I ask you a follow-up on this Food prices. I was just talking to 
Tyler Goodspeed about this. And, you know, uh, I guess because of the war, right? So wheat, grains, fertilizers, uh, supply problems, because the Black Sea, all those depots, you know, through from which exports flow uh, have been shut down, basically. So what are food prices doing? To They're the, going to through the roof. And, and they're going absolutely through the roof. But one thing I don't like is that all those things you mentioned are, are very pertinent and, and they're happening right now. But a lot of these things were going up to begin with. You know, Milton Friedman, inflation is always never a monetary phenomenon. Remember, we increased the money supply by 40 percent in two years. I mean, you know that, obviously. But so these things were all moving. And if you want proof of that, I can whiteboard it out and show you commodities that are completely unaffected by Russia that are go- have gone up the same amount or similar amounts. So the, they've gone up across the board. The orchestrators of this nonsense have to be in a panic, and I think that, the, that they are. I think it's one thing for the Fed to sit back and visualize how wonderful 4% inflation would be for a while to inflate us out of our debt and our pension obligations. It's another thing to see fires in Peru and Sri Lanka and Venezuela when people are starting to rise up. So I think we're in a, in a terrible spot, and food is where it's going to hit the worst, obviously. David Bonson, what are rising interest rates going to do to the stock market? I mean, and 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 I was just looking through some of my stock sheets. So the two years, this is year to date. The two-year treasury is up 178 bips. The 10 years up 119. The Fed funds rate is just starting to creep up. Fed funds rate is going to have to go up a whole lot more a whole lot more, and the Fed is um, is uh, now running off their bond portfolio. So you're going to get. I mean, I think you've got an interest rate explosion here on the horizon. What do you make of that? What's that going to do to stocks? Yeah, I think that the ten year has already priced the bulk of that, and and all I can do is try my best to avoid a deja vu here. Because we went through this in 2015, stocks were up, 16 stocks were up, 17 stocks were up. And the fact of the matter is that where the 10 year is sitting here, let's call it two and a half percent. So a little bit less than half of its 50 year average. But the three months to the 10 year is really quite wide, while the two and 10 have basically inverted. And so I think that's the market telling you that the Fed is behind getting the Fed funds rate up. But then once you get out on the curve, that's about as far as it's going to go, that they don't believe the Fed is going to get as as far as really they need to for normalization. Um, so what, what it does to stocks, Larry, well, um, I think the high P.E. stocks have to come down. And I think if interest rates didn't go up, the high P.E. stocks have to come down. But right now, we, you just said, what, the 10 years up 120 basis points on the year? The Dow's down 4%. So I think uh, that answers where, where the rate effect of stocks is. That's a very benign view. <laughs> very it, benign it, view. But, it, but it, it's, benign, it's benign only <laughs> um, in this sense. That I, I guess what I would argue, Larry, and this is an important point, I do not think it's benign for all aspects. I just don't think it's going to be equally distributed. If I was dependent on a 50 times P.E. going to 70 times, I'd be very, very worried because I don't think in a two and a half percent 10 year you can get that kind of multiple expansion. But if your stock portfolio is focused on free cash flow growth, then you really don't have to care as much about the uh, 
pricing impact from the 10-year. And so I think it is benign for some aspects of equities and not for all. And that's the argument for nuance I'm making that active management can give and that indexing cannot. I can hit you with a more dramatic and hyperbolic take on that, too, if you want a little more. If you want a little more adjectives. I I think that when you see what Bill Dudley wrote in that commentary in Bloomberg uh, the other day about how the Fed, it would be best to reverse the wealth effect in a sense, knocking down investable assets. I mean, what kind of God complex, wild hubris is it is to think that they can control the markets that they do? But – the point that it underscores to me is that I think in the past I would say that they weren't willing to, to look at a 10% decline in stocks and not flinch. Now I think in their head they think a 20 to 25% decline in stocks is doable. And they sent Lyle Brainerd out, who's you know, one of the queen of the doves, to speak hawkishly. <laughs> the market is pricing it. The queen of the doves is well, one of your things, right? <laughs> Jim, Jim, you say they're willing. When you say they're willing, you're talking about Bill Dudley. So they're all willing to when they become op-ed writers. And are no, no, that's a great point. That, that's an excellent point. He's no longer part of the Fed. But, I mean, he is a Fed insider. It has to have some yeah. sort of no, creep. I'm, I'm saying it, it's the exception that proves the rule. When he was a Fed governor, there wasn't a willingness to see risk assets suffer 5% for him. For 15 years, they wouldn't do anything but coddle housing, coddle stocks, coddle credit. Now, all of a sudden, he doesn't have skin in the game. He's willing to write that op-ed. I don't take him seriously for a second. Yeah, but I think, uh, look, here's a question, Jim Uriel. What, the, the 10 years at 370, uh, I'm sorry, 270, it's up 119 basis If you take your eyes off, it'll be at 370 in a couple of minutes. But anyway, go yeah. on. <laughs> no, no, that's where I'm going. I think yeah. you got a 35 to 4% 10-year, and I think it's coming soon. What's your take on that? Yes. So what, one thing they have to remember, too, is that it's just been in the last couple of weeks that the Fed wasn't actually buying long-end bonds. Now, they've right. just stopped, and now they've just started the rhetoric about how um, they're going to let it roll off, which I, I'm not so I, – yes, I think rates are going higher, and I think this is the first time we've taken the uh, leash off them to see where they're actually going to normalize, I guess is the right word. The one thing I think is interesting is that you know we were we had a um, – you know, an inversion just two weeks ago. And now, I mean, plus, plus 19 is nothing to write home about, but it's starting to steepen out a little bit. I think uh, long-end rates are going quite a bit higher. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't see uh, – 3.5% seems perfectly normal to me. All right, we're going to take Jim, quick... I, I can't make any money talking about this on the radio with you. I want to take the other side of that trade with you. I want All right, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. got You can take the other side of the trade – on the other side of the break, I got to take commercial break. We got Dave Bonson of the Bonson Group and Jim Urio, TJM Institutional Services. I'm Larry Kudlow, the Queen of the Dubs. That's exactly right. Who's never admitted that she was actually a capitalist? We'll take a break and we'll come back in just a moment. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're talking stocks with David Bonson, founding. Founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group and author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. And Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services. Uh, David Bonson. Can I just to clarify, David, you think that the uh, interest rates have peaked? Is that what you're saying? No, I think that the tenure at 270 can get a little higher. But let me just very quickly give you two numbers. 300 basis points was the 10-year after they stopped doing QE3, 
Six months later, 160 basis points. It was 160 before QE stopped. It got to 300, and six nine months later, it was at 160, and it stayed down there between 150 and 250 for a long time. And then, of course, all the COVID stuff, you know, brought it down even further, and then now here we are coming higher and so forth. My point is at the end of QE, uh, three different times saw the 10-year go up before it then went on to make a new low. And the, and the reason for this is not me being uh, bullish. It's actually a very bearish view. It's that I don't believe they can get the growth they need apart from real supply-side pro-growth initiatives. And the bond market has been saying this over and over again. And, and I don't disagree with the idea of talking about what would happen to markets if the bond yields did in fact go higher. I'm just pointing out historically that we've been talking about this since I was in elementary school and it just it just doesn't happen. I and wanna I, crack at this, I Larry. Did, you I know I wanna crack at this. Yeah, I mean what I'll just comment that, that we didn't have any in, inflation in those earlier uh, periods. So this is a different game, I think. But Jim Urio, go ahead. That was my point is that I think that those times, David, and I, I actually I, – a couple points you made today I really, really respect. This is the one I'm going to go after, though, is that those times you speak of, there was an anticipation that the Fed could rev back up the money printing machine and start buying more QE. I don't think the market believes that because inflation is you know, a runaway. I don't even think is a, is a hyperbolic way to, to describe it. So I think that there's, the, the cavalry is not running in and buying bonds again. And I don't see who else would be buying them in this sort of inflationary period. So that's yeah, but, why I disagree. But Jim, after, after QE3, we're not talking about that the market believed that the Fed would come back in and buy more bonds. In 2016, 17, 18, they were actively rolling off the balance sheet. Now, no, but every other central bank – Every other central bank was buying tons of bonds, too, and that was bleeding over to here. The spread between the German and the, and the U.S., I mean, it was relatively tight. I mean, there was other factors, all I'm saying is that. And the only one right now who talks about revving things up is the Bank of Japan. So I, I think that things are – I genuinely I hate to be the one who says this time it's different because so many times that turns around and bites you. But I do think this time it's a bit different. Well, we have – Yeah. I, I think you have – David, you don't believe the inflation is, is a permanent issue. I mean, that's at the root of your thinking. And I think that's the that's the cutting edge of the argument is whether this inflation is is transitory or permanent. And I think that I I think that you could take that inflation rate, gentlemen. Uh, The CPI is running at eight percent. Okay, you can take some pandemics out. You could take some war out. I still think you're left with a five or six percent inflation rate, and that is two or three times higher than the inflation rate uh, that existed during the prior periods you're talking about. So I think the only way you get to your point is if you uh, if you discount or disregard the inflation threat. I, I think that's at the root of this. Right, but I do. I agree with you. It's just that I'm not so much saying that that's what will happen. I'm saying that's what the bond market is saying will happen, and so it's the bond market is the signal here, not the effect. Now, is the bond market going to be wrong entirely? Which I think would be, we'd all have to admit, kind of unprecedented. I mean, generally the bond market here is speaking to what will be the case, not reflecting. But my point is that. Five or six, if they settle at an inflation rate of five or six, that's very different 
that if they settle at an inflation rate of three or four, and three or four is unacceptable to me. It's not only double their own stupid inflation target, but it's immoral. It punishes savers. It's bad for the economy. It's not stabilizing for King Dollar. But at three to four, I think they'd let it go. I don't think they care about three or four percent inflation. I do think five or six, if you're right, is a different story. But Jim, Yurio, uh, it just strikes me that the bond market is in a state of transition right now that and you know the inflation expectations uh are rising i mean one one and it's the suppression of interest rates by the fed distorts a lot of this stuff but the five-year break-evens are three and a half just about three and a half percent and that's a five-year forecast so i i think that the nominal bond market is is changing i think it's changing its view and I think the assistance from the Fed, uh, it's not drying up. Well, it is drying up. I'll use that phrase. The assistance from the Fed in the bond market is gradually drying up, Jim Muriel. Yeah, and I mean, that's completely evident. If, if we're to believe that QE was done to keep long-end rates artificially low, which, of course, that what other reason could it have been to do that? And now that they're allowing it to go on its own, it's in a period of transition for sure. The one thing I will say about the inflation that we haven't mentioned yet, I do see some time in the future where higher rates, declining risk asset prices, um, you know, the other thing is the cure for higher prices is higher prices and supply chains easing up all could be happening at the same time. I think that's quite a while away, and I think there is going to be a recession that's part of that. But I do – I mean, inflation won't last forever, I don't think. God, I hope not. So that's one thing I think that, David – I mean, if you're looking that forward in the bond market, which I don't believe it, I just believe the bonds are transitioning right now, but I think there's some day – the Fed is serious about getting rid of inflation. I think they will do it, but something's going to break in the meantime. One point, though, David, apart from rates, is uh, profits, the mother's milk of stocks. Now, uh, Ed Hyman, for example, is saying you know the profit story is still pretty strong. So that is, uh, I think, all year has been a helpmate to the stock market. Yeah, well, it's the story of the stock market. I learned it from you. Um, The question is the profit growth relative to the multiple. And so if all of a sudden, instead of getting 40% year-over-year profit growth like last year, you get 10%, but you're already at a 20 times multiple, you just simply don't have room to get double-digit moves in stocks. And in fact, you could even get with a little bit of downward movement in multiple, especially if you guys are closer to right about the interest rate, you know, what's the PE on the S&P if you really had a 3% handle on the 10-year? I think it's probably down to 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. That means uh, the S&P has to drop 15% with 10% profit growth, Larry. Mm-hmm. So that's why I just don't want to be reliant on multiple expansion Things like energy, where you're getting huge profit growth, things like utilities that are kind of a safer haven, and then consumer staples that had priced in a lot. They didn't have great profit growth last year because of higher input prices. They now are in a position to pass that on and utilize their pricing power. Those make a lot more sense than technology. But but I, I think there's a little bit of disagreement. You know, obviously – 
I'm never going to say out loud I disagree with Larry on anything because you're my hero. But with Jim, Jim, I'm more comfortable disagreeing with, I guess. <laughs> 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 that always a story. <laughs> Jim Urio, what's the commodity market story? I think I, I still think that's where my focus is going to be, particularly like metals and miners. Um, a lot of you know some of the commodities have obviously you know are way. And again, we forget that the fundamental story favors commodities too. But you can get a little frothy based on market position. So some I don't like, but metals and miners I still like. I like gold and silver more than anything. And I know you usually hate gold and silver. And I I think that we're just running out of places to hide, and that's why I think those two things will 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 do well. Well, I think. Uh, me- What's your oil outlook? Me, you know that, and you, you guys laughed at me, and I hate to be – I'm not taking a victory lap because anything can happen in that market. But I thought that at 110, it had taken a lot of negative headlines and taken a lot of punches and you know, had some fits and starts trying to get higher than that. I think there is a belief that demand destruction happens around $4.50 a gallon, which is 50 cents higher than the, what the rule of thumb used to be. I am more negative on oil than positive. All right. David Bonson. And Jim Murio, a lovely Saturday discussion. Thank you, gentlemen. We're going to do some money in politics on the other side of the break. We have Mercy Slap and we have Match Slap with the same last name. I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. Stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So, money in politics. We have Mercedes Schlapp, former White House Strategic Communications Director and a host of CPAC, Mercy Schlapp, and Matt Schlapp, who was Chairman, American Conservative Union, Fox News political contributor, and host of America Uncanceled on CPAC Now, along with wife Mercedes. And then I have next CPAC is in Hungary in May. So my first question is, why wasn't I invited to the CPAC in Hungary? Larry, you've got a season pass with us. I mean, you want to come on the road with us. We're going to go to Hungary in May. We're going to go to Mexico City in September. We're seeing about Israel because of all the virus stuff. Uh, and then we're going to be in Dallas, which is where you've already told me you want to be in Texas, our next big, big, big. CPAC in August. It's going to be a heck of a ride. Yeah, I'm going to probably pass on Hungary uh, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. But I, w- I do want to make the Dallas one. I definitely want to make the Dallas one. We'd love to have you back. You know, you played an important role, and we said this on stage a couple of times, where you've been somebody who's understood this free market, uh, pro-human freedom message for a couple of decades in politics, and you help knit it together, which is what we have to do to be successful. We don't need to be warring factions. We need to be a coalition of people understanding what the goals are. Yeah, well, I think you know, I think we're gaining on it. Uh, that's an interesting point, Mercy. I mean, I think being out of power right now, as we have been, but watching the you know radical left progressive movement from from Joe Biden on down has given uh, conservatives a chance kind of almost to regroup around a set of uh, important values and a set of important policies. I mean, I think, I think that's been knitting, knitting itself together in some way. Well, I got to tell you, Larry, I think that you find that Americans are 
basically thinking back and saying, goodness gracious, can we bring the guy who had the mean tweets back? Like, this is yeah. worse than I would have ever thought, because all of a sudden you're seeing a vacuum of leadership in the United States. And, you know, even when the liberals are in power, you just at least want them to be somewhat successful in terms of, like, making sure that we have strong national security and our economy is in a strong position. But that's not what's happening at all. And so while I do think conservatives have, you know, found an opportunity to regroup, what we're also finding is this ability to expand the base. Because Mm. now you're seeing parents uh, who were never involved in politics saying, what is going on? We've lost Disney World. We're losing our schools. They're basically trying to indoctrinate our children with all this uh, confusion. Uh, And I think that it's really backfiring. And so you're seeing so many new activists come into the conservative fold because they realize, like, what we stand for is so much common sense. And it's about... Uh, ensuring that we, you know, protect this great country and uh, knowing that our policies do work. The America First policies do work. Yeah, there's a, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think you're both right. I think that, you know, Matt, the, the Biden agenda, is, again, it's an ultra-radical progressive agenda uh, across the board on taxes, on, on climate change, uh, on parenting, uh, on on schooling, on the borders, on foreign policy, it unraveled so fast, Matt, that there was almost a, a positive shock effect among conservatives. Yeah, we're out of power, but look at what these guys have done. It's collapsed. A- every single one of them's collapsed. And I think that's the reason the cavalry's on the way. I mean, we probably can't... There we go. There we go. Oh God, that's ABC Radio. I love it. Um, but but I think I think the cavalry is on the way. But I do think we need to retake the White House. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think retaking Congress is good because we can stop stuff. Uh, but I think retaking the White House is going to be very important. Yeah, as you know, Larry. Uh, the, the unfortunate thing about living in uh, constitutional duress, as we I think we are in is that uh, the executive branch is where, it's, where it comes down to. The, the Supreme Court has done very little to rein in presidential powers over the decades, and co- Congress has ceded its ability, even on questions of spending and other things, to really oversee what it should be overseeing. So we're in, you know, we don't have a humble executive branch anymore, so if we want to make a difference in America, you've got to win the presidency. And for the Republican Party, I have a very clear message. If you want to, be, if you want to take back the White House, you've got to be – less sharp elbowed about mm. who wants to be a part of our coalition. We got a lot of Democrats. We did this at CPAC. We had Tulsi Gabbard speak, and a lot of people got mad at me. But you know what? She wanted to come dress down her party on woke. We got a lot of Democrats who think cops are good, think the military is important, think that teachers uh, shouldn't have to teach CRT and that America is racist. And we got parents who don't believe they're domestic terrorists. That's just not Republicans and conservatives who care about these sets of issues. It's kind of all common sense people. So we've got to broaden the room a little bit. You know, Mercy, you know, you should have to your CPAC gathering in Texas is Elon Musk. I love it. Elon Musk. Do you, do I'm you telling you. <laughs> We're trying to get a hold of him. because I have his. I have stuff. Larry, you got to call him. You got to call him for us. We got to get him. I have stuff. Uh, I'm trying to get him on the show. He doesn't. He doesn't like that. But I think he would stand up and give a speech. I mean, look, 
you know, he's bought out. He hasn't bought out, but he's taken over Twitter. Trust me, it's going to be. Uh, he's going to do it. He's an active guy um, on the free speech movement. But you know, uh, and that's going to be a very, very important change uh, and a welcome change. But he's also he attacked Build Back Better. Okay, he said we don't need any of this stuff. And he also, I mean, mind you, this is the biggest manufacturer of, of electric cars. But he said, uh, this is a couple, three, four weeks ago, he said, yeah, of course, we should be producing more oil and gas. So he's this sort of libertarian person, free markets, obviously pro-business. And I think you should give him a huge spotlight in Dallas. He has, by the way, a big operation in Dallas. He's in Texas a lot yeah, of the huge. time. So I, I think yeah, I you, mean, got, you got to get him. Larry, we need your help to get him because, you know, he is he's so fascinating. I think that he really for so many of us, every time he's taken a, a bold action, uh, for example, you know, just now saying, OK, you know what? I've asked my 80 million followers, uh, you know, if, if Twitter, you know, if, if there's too much censorship on Twitter and they say yes. So let me just buy, you know, let me buy a part of the company. Yeah. And you're just. He takes action, and he's unafraid, and he's Murphy. also been helpful on Ukraine as well uh, in making Murphy, sure that me, they have their communications up and running. Yes, sweetheart. Let me tell you a funny story about Elon Musk. You know, about seven, eight years ago, one of the people who was working for him uh, came to me and said, would you, would you let Elon Musk speak? And I was like, hell no. He's like the electric car mandate guy. Like, he's not our guy. Boy, did I blow it, Larry. That I had that <laughs> one wrong. Well, look, he – now, I don't know that he was ever mandates. Now he and he's been criticized, but look, he took tax credits, uh, the Obama tax credits for electric cars. I mean, he took them because they legislated them, and GM oh, yeah. took them, and Ford took them, and Chrysler took them. In fact, he wound up selling his credits to GM and and turned a, a nice profit on it. But the point is, it's interesting to me how you know we talk a lot about free market capitalism, so. Here's these social media people getting away with bloody murder and uh, repressing free speech and so forth and tilting the playing field far, far to the left. Uh, I much prefer Elon Musk buying Twitter than I do having the federal government running social media. You follow me? I don't, and, and breaking up technology companies and stuff like that. This is well, a much thing, better way to do it. It's much more uh, efficient, and it has a freedom ring to it. That's why I love the Elon Musk story. And the other thing is the reason why he was out there on the fossil fuels is because he's smart enough to know that a lot of our electricity is generated by fossil fuels in this country. And these ding-dongs on the left, they literally think that the, the electricity is in the wall somewhere, and that's how you get it. But uh, – I know, Mercy, you have a better idea on the social media piece. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, interesting, Larry, I think you kind of need a mix because I do think when these and, – and I'm not into over-regulating any sort of businesses, but I do think that uh, the big techs have gotten just too powerful. I mean, when you have, for example, Mark Zuckerberg spending hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to impact our election, it's, very, it's troublesome. I mean, so I think that there is a role for government, but, you know, you don't also want to overregulate the companies, but you also don't want these companies to be the ones influencing elections and determining what is free speech or not. That's a no, that's listen, that's that's a good point, but it's a state election point. 
It's not a government running companies point, which is my my. You know, on this, I had Bill Barr on the show, a long interview, twenty minute interview, and he acknowledged uh, that basically that election could have been rigged before it even started to vote because of Zuckerberg. And also there's a dark money piece in that uh, plus, you know, sort of Zuckerberg Zuckerberg plus. Yeah, I mean, you you get a lot of these uh, nonprofit 501c3s. They don't have to report, Matt, right? So it's in the dark money players from the left. But but Bill Barr's acknowledged that. He said, yep, yep. This is why you should have, you know, to me, a lot of us didn't realize. I realized the fraud because I went to Nevada and saw it firsthand. And I'm experiencing this. I've done politics my whole life. I could walk through the thousands of here and the thousands of illegal votes there. So I have the benefit of that. And most people in this country don't have the benefit of that. And they were told by the media that it was not a thing. Well, it is a thing. And I'll put my whole reputation on the fact that we had very serious problems. But we didn't know about the Zuckerberg money. It took that Time Magazine story to come out and piece it all together because they all started to brag. All the operatives, that's the one thing about the left they always do. They all started to brag about what they did. And, you know, what they did was really criminal. You really can't have private money flow into, like you said, a publicly held election. Um, When you have business before the Congress and those administrations, uh, and President Trump had been very forward about the fact that he wanted to regulate these countries or at least allow them to be you defend themselves in a court of law through the repeal of Section uh, 230. And, you know, and so they didn't want him to get a second term and they spent a lot of money to prevent it. Well, I'd be more than happy to repeal Section 230, by the way. I think that's a big thing. But the uh, the rest of it is a, a state election law thing. And, and that's, you know, very important issue. All right, got to take a quick break. We are talking to Mercy Slap. We are talking to Match Slap, two of my dearest friends, both uh, running CPAC and both making fabulous contributions to American political discourse. I'm Larry Kudlow. We will be right back with some more. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. We're with Mercedes Slap, former White House Strategic Comms Director, Matt Slap, the head of American Conservative Union. They both run CPAC, and they're both very dear friends. Man, kids, I want to just, with remaining moments, Mercy, I want to talk about Title 42 and this border catastrophe and how I just that Biden administration and this guy Mayorkas, who just lied on, uh, I don't know, CBS Evening News or someplace that you know, Donald yeah. Trump's the guy who unraveled. Uh, of course, it's they who unraveled the border uh, security. I mean, I want to build the damn wall and I want we should go back to remain in Mexico and we should catch and, and deport. But to get rid of Title 42 uh, with a straight face and think that this is not going to have a catastrophic impact, Mercy, this is beyond me. I absolutely agree. I think that they're calculating about 18,000 people coming in through the border daily with the end of Title 42. You're also seeing a number of Democrat senators like Senator uh, Kristen Sinema and Senator uh, Mark Kelly basically also uh, supporting Republicans and saying we got to keep this in place. And the reality is, is that the Biden administration, they've just abandoned the border. And uh, and with it, what we've seen is increased crime, increased, uh, uh, you, you know, the, the fact that we're seeing more fentanyl, more meth, more cocaine coming through the border. Drug cartels are in charge, obviously. When it was under President Trump, we were able to get those numbers 
significantly down. People were not coming across the border. Now they have a huge incentive uh, to come over. Uh, why? Because they know that, you know, they're not going to be deported. They're just going to be picked up, put in a bus and taken to another city where whether you're a family unit or a single uh, adult male. And Matt, I mean, I think this will have a big political impact. I mean, I think that this is not just a border issue. This is a national issue. And I think there's just no support for all the it's funny. It's not only the lack of sovereignty and clear borders, but as Mercy was saying, you've got the drug traffickers, you've got the sex traffickers, you've got the children's traffickers, and you've got spreading it around the country. I mean, this is a big political issue, is it not? Yeah, so we remember back to peace through strength, which you know well, which was it wasn't just building up our uh, economy. It was having a strong American culture and a strong American uh, – excuse me, it wasn't just building up our national defense. It was about building up our national economy and our culture. And so what happens is the borders, it all kind of collides, Larry. You have this – the drugs that are flowing over that are poisoning our kids. Uh, you know, it's an epidemic proportion up over 100 percent, this death from fentanyl, most of it made in China. In China. Then you have the question about over 100 people from over 100 different countries are coming through that border. This is not a Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Mexico thing. This is an, it, the, the world is coming through our southern border. We don't know anything about them. If you want to undermine America, it is very easy to do by coming through our southern border. So you hit the national security question, the questions of our economy. And our culture, like what's good for our kids, it is a disaster. And I tell you what, Larry, the American people are furious. That's why, Mercy, some of these Democrats are running scared on it. You're right, Kelly. Uh, Hassan from New Hampshire. Uh, the one from Las Vegas, Nevada, can never remember her name. They're, they want to sign on to a counter bill, but I don't know if they'll be able to vote on a bill. It's not clear to me. Because remember uh, this yeah. This yeah. is the COVID spending is part of this bill and they can drop the COVID spending and there's no bill. And I'm not sure you could have a separate vote on a separate item. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I think that the look, I think that they're the Democrats are in big trouble on this issue. Um, you know, you look at the polling, the majority of American people believe we should have a secure border. Uh, they're seeing what's happening in their cities in terms of crime and, and it gets to the point that I think it hurts the Democrats politically. And the mere fact is, is that they could, the Democrats, you know, Mallorca said this in his interview where he says, well, we don't want inhumane policies. Well, it's inhumane if you're permitting young girls to be sexually assaulted and raped mm-hmm. as they're on this journey through the, getting to the border. That's inhumane. It's inhumane if you're seeing these migrants that are coming over and some of them don't even finish the journey because they die. Uh, this is not what we want in terms of a uh, of our uh, legal immigration system, and and quite frankly, I just think the Democrats really failed the American people on this. It will be interesting to see. Look, the last thing we need is more COVID spending. You know this, Larry. The Democrats want to spend our, the, our way out of every single problem. Uh, this only, I think, adds additional stress to our economy. Um, and I do think that they, they'll need to figure out if they separate it and, and, and you know, go from there. These, are, these illegals are not going to be helped. I mean, you're right. We're not being compassionate letting them in. I mean, by the way, it's, um, there's a lot of welfare laws that will not be uh, – that will not allocate money to the illegals. It's not that easy anymore. And there's a lot of health care spending that can't be done. We don't have the money. Uh, 
and the states are not welcoming the illegals. You know, they, we have it here in north of New York City, Westchester County Airport. There was a big story a little while ago. In the dead of night, this plane arrives, and it's a bunch of illegal immigrants. Nobody knew what to do with them. Nobody knew they were coming. And everybody got very angry, including local uh, government people, including local Democrats who were running local government people. They didn't like it either. Nobody liked it. And so the illegals, where are they going to go? They don't have any money. I mean, it's it's very it's inhumane. Larry, the other thing that's happening is it's not even just uh, that every state in the union is getting these, you know, midnight flights with people yeah. landing and infiltrating their community. So when you have these border states in Texas, which have predominantly been Democratic through the years, we've had I think it's four mayors races have flipped from D to R. Mm-hmm. You're having all kinds of changes. In the Texas legislature, the same thing's happening, by the way, in Arizona along the border. They have less of the border, but they have border there, too. And so what you're seeing is, is that this whole open border with all the drugs and all the crime and all the unknowns, it is not popular at all with anyone except big city left wingers who feel like this is a play to race in America. And I tell you what, if you're black or Hispanic and you live in the communities being maligned by all this uh, uncontrolled immigration. It doesn't matter what your politics are. You're mad at the Democratic Party for pushing it. Yeah, I think so. Mercy, last one. Hunter Biden's laptop. <laughs> this is. Be- I I cut. I love this story because the more you dig in. By the way, it's a whole family venture. Okay, there's there's Hunter the son, but there's also J- Jim. Joe's brother, and then there's their wives, and then there's in-laws, and then there's ex-wives. I mean, this is a uh, Miranda Devine was on earlier. This is a family grift story, and the idea here is mercy. When they come around, like maybe they're going to have Easter dinner next Sunday, they don't talk about it, right? Joe doesn't know anything about this stuff. Despite the fact, of course, that they've been paying out of these grifter funds from China and Ukraine and Russia, they've been paying his expenses for years. Now, this one's this one's not going to hold. This is not going to turn out well for Joe Biden. Oh, goodness. I agree with you. <laughs> I think as I'm starting to read more and more of these emails of Joe Biden, uh, you're you're figuring out that Joe Biden was basically uh, part of many of these meetings. And you, let me tell you, you got to give credit to Hunter. I mean, he really knows how to use his father to be part of these meetings and really secure these, you know, million dollar deals for crying out loud. So I think this is a huge headache for the White House. I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. I think once people start digging into more of these emails, it really will put Joe Biden in a very difficult position. I think it could lead to the point that Republicans may move forward with impeachment Mm -hmm. of Joe Biden if we know for a fact that. He was getting, uh, you know, cuts of these business deals. And remember, these are with foreign companies, um, yes. you know, uh, based out of China and Ukraine and Russia. It's very problematic for this president. And, and, and I got to tell you, uh, it shows you one thing. What was Hunter thinking, uh, putting this all on email and text and knowing that he can't get away with it? He's going to be busted on the Foreign Intelligence Act, too. And he didn't register as a foreign lobbyist. Anyway. Mercy slap, thank you. Match slap, thank you. Love both of you. Terrific stuff. Folks, we're going to sign off. I'm Larry Kudlow. 
We will be back next weekend. Don't forget the Fox Business Show, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. We'll see you on radio next Saturday.